0: Hi, this is Debony Morgan. Welcome to The Spirit of Now, a podcast produced by Zeitgeist in Atlanta. Today, we're talking to Loretta Coleman-Brown, a spiritual director here in Atlanta who remains affiliated with her training program, Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation. She's retired as a Distinguished Professor Emerita of Psychology at Agnes Scott College with an undergraduate from UC Santa Cruz Go Banana Slugs, and a PhD from Harvard. Loretta's been published in compilations such as Embodied Spirits, Spiritual Directors of Color Tell Their Stories, and Living Into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. Today, we're going to be talking about her terrific book, When the Heart Speaks, Listen, Discovering Inner Wisdom. So Loretta, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Let's begin by talking about your medical experience because that's really the frame around the picture for the book. That's sort of what initiated that. So tell us your story and and what you went through that informs the content of the book. So at about nine months, I was uh,
1: diagnosed with a heart murmur uh, of some unknown origin. And um, I continued to have uh, visits with my pediatric cardiologist over the years. Uh, From time to time, my heart would become enlarged. And um, I had my first uh, angiogram when I was about 11, Mm -hmm. and uh, another when I was about 16. And then finally, when I turned about 21, the doctors were able to diagnose my condition, which was called idiopathic hypertrophic subaortic stenosis which basically meant that they didn't know what I had. Wow. They finally settled on the term hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a genetic disorder. It's often runs in families, and um, it has now about 22 variations um, from uh, a mutation that produces a slightly smaller heart, but sudden death. Often mm. you will see this among athletes who just drop out during activity. Um, the particular form that runs in my family is uh, somewhere along the line, whether you're young um, or, or uh, somewhat older, at some point, the, your heart condition becomes a cardiomyopathy. Your heart starts to enlarge and the muscles become thin and dilated. And it's kind of like a big flabby muscle, mm. more like a, a rubber band that's lost its elasticity. And um, unless you have a transplant, you basically die of heart failure. Hmm. So I, uh, of course, went off to graduate school knowing that I had this, but not knowing just how serious it was. However, I ran into some issues um, as a graduate student and started to feel short of breath and have difficulty getting across campus uh, and some chest pain. And so in 1979, I had my first open-heart surgery, and that was called a myomectomy. And they were trying to cut away some of this tissue that was enlarged. Um, And the the surgery was successful, but I don't think I was aware at the time that, because it was a genetic-based disorder, that it was going to come back. So I noticed sometime in about 1993 that... I started kind of slowing down. I had more difficulty getting around and walking. Um, and so the next time I went to visit my cardiologist, uh, you know, I had an echocardiogram as I normally do when I have my visits. And uh, the doctor came in and looked at it and said, oh, I see your heart condition has turned into a cardiomyopathy. I think you're looking at a transplant in the next three to four years. And then he turned around and walked out of the room. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, of course, I was so shocked. I think I almost fell off the table. Um, And the technician, who was just so sweet and kind, um, you know, helped me up. I think she was as shocked as I was and, um, you know, helped me to my car. And uh, she said, are you going to be okay? And I said, well, I guess. (laughs) So that was a long... At the time, I was living in Colorado, and so it was a long ride from Denver to Boulder. Um, So I sat with that for a while and uh, decided that I would seek a, a second opinion, which I did from another doctor in Denver who told me that he didn't think that my... My condition was really that bad, and that um, you know, perhaps maybe the bouts of shortness of breath that I was having was really maybe adult asthma, and I might want to follow up on that. But uh, about a year later, uh, I really started having serious bouts of heart failure, where I, you know, was short of breath, very tired. Um, just couldn't really function. And um, that's when my doctor said, well, I think it's time for you to really seriously consider um, that you might need a heart transplant sooner than actually the three years. Uh, and and referred me to University Hospital at the time in, in Denver, Colorado. Of course, I was hysterical because here I was, a single... Um, Professor, living by myself, thinking, how am I going to be able to have a heart transplant? How am I going to be able to take off time? How am I going to survive this? And so um, my friends, knowing that I was about hysterical, decided that um, perhaps maybe I needed to seek some mental health services and... Uh, directed me to uh, a wonderful psychotherapist named Ricardo Esparza, who was um, a man who who worked with patients who had chronic health conditions. And so I started seeing Dr. Esparza, and, um, and as I was beginning to talk more and more to the doctors who were saying, I think your heart transplant um, really needs to happen sooner than later, um, I told him, I said, I, you know, I'm having trouble with this, so they're going to take out my heart, and they're going to put someone else's in? I mean, like somebody I don't know, they're going to put their heart in my chest? Yeah. I mean, I just couldn't wrap my head around that. And so he said, well, I said, I don't even know how to make that decision. I said, you know, I've had this heart condition since, since I was a little girl, and of course it has led to some restrictions, and so it's kind of like you know, the brain center of my life in some ways. I mean, you know, can I go outside in the cold? Can I run down here to the corner? I mean, all those kinds of things. And so how can I actually let it go? And so he said, well, you know what? Maybe you need to make the decision with your heart. And at first I thought, oh, man, here's some old (laughs) psychobabble, California woo, and I'm from California, of course, idea like I'm going to sit down and really talk. I'm going to make the decision with my heart, really? Okay. Okay. So, uh, but I was pretty concerned. As Concerned is really an understatement. I was still not even could fathom, how am I going to do this? So I decided, I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I'll just sit down with the yellow pad and, you know, have this conversation. And... Uh, what I discovered was that my heart actually responded. I mean, it took a little while. You know, I kept saying, "Hello, I know you're there. I can feel you beating. Come on, let's 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 have this conversation. Get it over with, yeah. so we can
0: get on with it." And well, uh, and Marie, let me interrupt real quick. Can you tell us more about what, what you're referring to? Is the technique of active imagination, right? Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit more about exp- how that works? Yes. Yeah, so, active imagination
1: is really. Uh, originates from Carl Jung, who uh, was very interested in understanding symbols in dreams, and that's actually where this idea of being able to project out either people or parts of yourselves, or uh, in this case, an organ, and have a conversation with it. Uh, and uh, you know, it's been termed active imagination. And, uh, you know, very useful in psychotherapy in lots of different cases. I actually had heard of it before. It wasn't something new. Uh, Having been a psychology professor, I I was well aware of this idea about being able to project out um, a person, say your mother or father or whomever you wanted to have a conversation with, and have that conversation, have that dialogue. So it was not a new process. But... I had not I don't think I I don't think I had done it actually with anybody. And so uh I was uh pleasantly surprised in some ways that it wasn't as difficult as I thought. The 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 writing was really important. The that sort of connection with uh, you know sort of uh, brain motor coordination kind of thing, as opposed to getting on a keyboard that 's mm-hmm. not to say that i haven 't had conversations like this on the keyboard, but <clears throat> starting the process out with writing was very important, just like journaling or any sort of forms of um, of, of expressiveness that way and you know after f- uh, a few moments, my heart started answering, and it was almost <laughs> as if. I was just writing to keep up with the conversation that was going back and forth. I was like, "Oh my goodness, there's a conversation here." Yeah. And after that first conversation, my heart said, "Well, so uh, let's talk again next week." And I'm like, "What? Next week? <laughs> We're gonna have another conversation?" <clears throat> and I was intrigued with the first conversation, which is actually a confrontation. I mean, I'm accusing my heart of failing and falling down on the job, and my heart saying, "Excuse me, you know, you've been uh, working me overtime for years." <laughs> So we actually start out with uh, quite a, I would, I would describe it's as really an argument about whose
0: fault is this. Isn't that <laughs> interesting, right? Yes, it is. So, so tell us more about the personality of Heavy uh-huh. Harvey and what, how that conversation continued. Well, somewhere, I think it might
1: have been the third conversation or so, uh, we were you know, going along with things that I might be doing to, to help me survive, before we make the decision about the transplant and, you know, like less salt intake and, um, getting more sleep and, you know, just doing things that would probably help me with the heart failure that I had, I was clearly in. And, uh, so I made some comment about, um, my name, uh, and, uh, being, you know, pronounced Lorita, and my heart said, "Oh, Lorita." Well, and so uh, he then, and and I have to sort of go back and tell you sort of why it's a he. But he then re- reveals his name, which was Heavy Harvey, and I'm like, "Whoa, wait!" <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Wait, how can you be a male heart? I mean, you know." And so he says, "Well, you know, in the world of hearts, there is no such thing as." gender and race and social class. That's those categories you all make up. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I said, well, so wait, okay, can I get, let's get this straight. And so my heart said, look, I have a masculine tone, but I'm not male. Because as you know, the heart anatomically is the same for Mm -hmm. everybody. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) So, and as we go further along, and I don't really want to reveal you know, I don't want to, you know, to, to tell the whole story, but uh, we find out really more about why Heavy Harvey's name is Heavy Harvey, yeah. Um, because there, there, you know, there are some things that we learn about what people carry in their hearts and how that might play into the personality of the heart. I will say that I was surprised that uh, Heavy Harvey was such a wise cracking character. Um, with lots of heart puns, yeah, <laughs> and, and of course he keeps saying, "Well, you know, I got to keep you smiling because, you know, you are like in, in a funk here over this heart transplant, and maybe it won't be quite as bad as you think." Um, so, uh, he- Heavy Harvey is amazingly wise, and I—that I, was another surprise—is that wow, hearts are wise. And, yeah. and as he says, they're always trying to get our attention. They're sending red flags out there all, all, all the time. And most of the time,
0: we're not paying attention. Yeah. And usually in our culture, we think about our center of insight or wisdom or, or being smart or knowing the right thing to do, that we center that in our head. We center that in our logic but you're talking about the wisdom within the heart and, you know, your, your mission, your organization, peace for hearts. Is that, is, is that where this came from?
1: Absolutely. I, I I realized that as I went through this process of changing hearts, that I needed to make a change in heart, Mm. not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally and my my heart heavy heart kept emphasizing that look if you're going to get a new heart you're going to have to clear some of this space mm-hmm. you're going to have to clear out some of the stuff that you've been carrying in your heart because otherwise your new heart's going to get worn out quickly it's not going to be able to carry that heavy load so but when we are able to begin to let go of some of these Emotions that we carry around that kind of get built up over time. That um, there not only is a clearer space, but as my both my hearts say, you know, when there's when there's a a clearer space in our heart, that there's more room for singing and dancing. Mm -hmm. So that's the joy that we feel, and we are at greater and deeper peace. You know, oftentimes I know over my lifetime, and I've heard people ask me about this, Is they will say, you know, I would just like to have some peace of mind. Well, that sounds like an admirable go, but so what are you carrying around in your heart that might be blocking mm-hmm. that peace of mind? Mm-hmm. So after I went through this, I realized that I was being called to um, create an organization called Peace for Hearts. Um, Peace for Hearts. uh, And not just Peaceful Heart, but Peace for Hearts. So that people could understand that underneath all the stuff they're carrying is peace and joy. Mm -hmm. That I think we're created with that, and unfortunately along the way, lots of stuff gets piled up on that. You know, uh, disappointments and anger and resentment and, you know, all the kinds of things that can block us from feeling the peace and joy that I think is naturally in our hearts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning out the clutter. One of the things that that Harvey said to you that I wanted to highlight that I think goes along with that is Harvey tells you, Racist and sexist people, and they come in both genders, are like children. They are ignorant, feel extremely insecure, unworthy, and do not know who they are. Also, their hearts are packed with fear, and that's why they need other people to attack or devalue, so their own self-esteem is bolstered temporarily. Have mercy and compassion for them, but don't let them determine how you feel about yourself. I mean, that sounds like uh, an example of some of the clutter that we might be able to clear out is carrying other people's weight with us. Absolutely. I think that
1: oftentimes, from the very beginning, people begin to project some of their pain, some of their insecurities, some of their own baggage onto us, even as children. And we internalize that without even consciously knowing that that's what's happening and so as we become adults we're still carrying that with us and unless that gets cleared out we think well that's who we are that you know we are not this worthy person whether because it because it's we're female or um, of a different race African American or uh, Latino or Native American, whatever it is, mm-hmm. that you know we are less than others, um, is is just one of those lies that get, gets internalized. I think uh, sort of un- uncovering, un, you know, unearthing all of that to know that we are all created as you know w- wise, um, worthy um, human spirits. And that this other stuff is what gets imposed upon us. You know, babies arrive here. They don't know anything about who they are. And from the time they come out the wound, we begin to teach them that, well, you're a boy. Mm -hmm. And this is what goes along with being a boy. Or you're a girl. Or you're African-American. Or you're Asian. And you have to be like this. Um, And uh, it doesn't
0: have to be like that. Right. Yeah. So, you got the opportunity to start with a new heart. Obviously, things were successful, and we're so glad. So, how did things change once you were walking around with a new heart? Well,
1: uh, I awoke in the hospital, and uh, of course, in ICU, and I had had the ICU experience before, having had open heart surgery. Um, in graduate school, my amectomy, uh, and uh, I initially had a seizure, which kind of scared me. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what was happening, but I had a wonderful nurse basically tell me, uh, "Miss Coleman, you're having a seizure, so just remain calm. And of course, I was like thinking, oh my God, I'm a professor. How am I going to get through this, right? You know, I need my cognitive abilities. But I also knew that um, one of the biggest risks in having any kind of transplant initially is rejection, and um, they, of course, give you lots of steroids and high doses of anti-rejection medications to make sure that uh, that doesn't happen. A lot of it has to do with um, immunology and how how good of a match you have. Um, some some people have you know better matches than others. Unfortunately, there's a story of a gentleman in Michigan who uh, needed a heart transplant, and his daughter was in a, a car accident, and he got his daughter's heart, oh my which gosh. Was in some ways was almost a perfect match, but. But you know, obviously, you know, uh, gut wrenching for him and the family. So, but you can also, you know, they're, they're sort of matching antigens and and other kinds of you know blood type and those kinds of things. And so, I knew that if I uh, didn't sort of make contact with this new heart, that I might be in the hospital for weeks, right, dealing with these kinds of issues. Um, and, but it was a little weird because I'm thinking, wow, I survived a heart transplant. And at the same time, I know that there is some family who is in deep grief because they've lost a loved one. I mean, you know, some organs, you know, are not from uh, people who have died. You know, you, we obviously know that uh, lots of kidney transplants are, are from living donors, but typically, well, all the time with a heart, and <laughs> yeah. you know, that means that somebody died. And um, so it's very bittersweet, you know? I mean, it's like you, you almost feel like you can't be celebrating because, you know, somebody else is, is, um, in, is, is, is in grief. So, uh, But I, at the same time, I was like, okay, I just had a seizure. I think I need to contact this heart so we can start talking. And so, but the new heart, um, who I later learn is named Grace,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, is a little reluctant to talk. First, she's like, what happened? <laughs> right? Um, How did I get into this new body? <laughs> um, and second, uh, you know, who are you? Right? You know, And why are you trying to talk to me? And what I learned from Grace is that Hearts are communicating to us all the time. So mm-hmm. what's with this talking business, right? Yeah. Uh, because they're usually not talking to us. I mean, obviously I'm doing this talking because I'm writing these conversations. But n- under normal circumstances, she says, they don't have, you don't have to talk. You just have to pay attention to my you know, uh, communication that I'm giving you all the time. So, uh, so she found this, you know, talking stuff a little weird at first, and, and especially with somebody that was a stranger, right? Right. And as I say, you know, it's kind of like walking up to some stranger on the street and asking for the time and then saying, oh, would you like to go have a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, awkward is probably an understatement for the first couple of conversations that, that we had but i I begin to learn something about um, the person um, Jody who donated this heart and what kind of person she was it's a, you know it was, it's a wonderful story in some ways because initially I had kind of made up a story about a drunk driver et etc um, and in nineteen in two thousand sixteen or no, fifteen was the twentieth anniversary of my heart transplant and mm-hmm. so I was able then, and and I should backtrack a little bit and say that about a year after my transplant, I met her best friend and a woman who was like her surrogate mother. So Jodi's mother actually had um, a brain tumor at age 43 and died. Jody was probably about 14, 15 at the time. And uh, she was always concerned that in her 40s, she might have some health issues. And so... Uh, the day before she turned forty, she had a brain aneurysm, which is what led to um, her death and donating of a heart, two kidneys, a liver, and some cornea because her father was an optometrist. And I learned this story, some of it from her uh, uh, friend Kathy and her surrogate mother Lillian, but in two thousand fifteen. Uh, Lillian decided to see if she could track down any members of the family and found her older brother, Cam, and and also realized that in that 20 years, her father had passed away and her brother younger brother had passed away. And so uh, Cam was very interested in meeting me. Uh, I, I Initially, I sent them thank you notes. Um, didn't get any response, but was not surprised right, because sure. some families want to meet and some families are just... They're like, you know, I'm just grieving. I I can't. So and I understood that, but I, I have remained in contact with Kathy, her best friend, and with Lillian, the woman who was her surrogate mother over the years. So for nearly 25 years, we've been in in you know regular contact, which wow. has been lovely. Um, but so we had an opportunity in 2016 to actually meet Cam. Cam came here. Um And uh, he gave me permission to tell her real story. And once he gave me permission to tell her real story, it really, I think, changed the di- dynamics of the book. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was a real story. It was a true story as opposed to making up a story about how uh, my donor you know passed away. And uh, I was so happy. Uh, to find out that she was a Green Bay Packers fan, and <laughs> you know that she worked in retail, and just you know some wonderful you know stories and things about her that I would not have learned had I not had an opportunity to meet her best friend and um, her, her surrogate mother and her real brother. So it turned mm-hmm. out to be a, a wonderful opportunity to connect, and so I'm now
0: in contact with her brother on a regular basis as well. And what a blessing I would imagine for them as well to know that uh, not only is somebody else leading a healthy life, but somebody who is deeply reflective about that experience. Yes. That, that you have so much appreciation. Oh, yes. Um, for all of that it's brought.
1: Well, know? and you know, her brother was one of the first people that I sent a book to when it, it was published, and he was. He he was you could tell he was just so thrilled, and he just said thank you so much for, for giving, us you know a voice to the Getz family. Yeah, um, they're they're from Wisconsin,
0: so it was very nice. Now you know that and that's not the end of of your medical story, right? That that you did have some some more events go on. So if if you would like to tell us about that, but my my bigger question is, you have lived through the paradigm of life, death, rebirth, this cycle that we all experience metaphorically, soulfully but they, it has been embodied for you. So so tell us more about that and share your wisdom around that experience. There is something
1: about having to face death. Uh, I was in my early 40s, but just the idea that I could die, period. I mean, I, you know, normally we don't think about it, right? Yeah. Uh, Ernest Becker wrote a wonderful book, The Denial of Death, and I think we all walk around, you know, not or trying not to think about it. But when you are um, in heart failure, you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it every day. And uh, initially, I think I was very fearful, so much so that often um, in those last couple months, I just didn't want to go to sleep because I was afraid I might not wake up. And um, so didn't get a lot of sleep. Uh, but I think that as I went through this, because my prayer every time I went into an OR was, if it be your will, I will wake up. And um, so I, I woke up from the transplant, and I thought, wow, okay, that means <laughs> I'm still supposed to be here. Um, and I took it as a sign that I had a purpose. Uh, I still had a purpose for being here. Because that, for, for me, the entire transplant experience was such a miracle. It, it And it was a miracle in in a number of ways that are, are spiritually based. It's a miracle because... Um, you know, I'm I'm still unsure in November when my doctor comes to me and says, uh, you know, would you like to go on the list? I think it might be time, and I'm thinking, well, it's not the end of the semester. <laughs> 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 I have papers to read. You know, it's such an insane thought, right? But truly indicative of where I was. Yeah. And. Um, and I, and I said, I'm, I'm waiting on a sign, and she just kind of looked at me like, okay, <laughs> I'm not sure what sign you're looking for, but, but I did put it out there. I said to the spirit, I said, look, if you really want me to have this transplant, then let, I need a clear sign. And three weeks later, you know, a minister friend of mine that I hadn't talked to in about a year and a half calls me from Colorado Springs and is calling me about something totally different. And we talk about that. And then he says, well, so how are you doing these days? And I'm like, oh, how am I doing? What doing? <laughs> and so he then says, well, you know, I happen to have this, this uh, gentleman in my congregation, Brother Dewberry. He had a transplant about three or four years ago. I'm going to have him call you. <laughs> right? Brother Dewberry calls me up. You know, we chat, you know, and I'm asking him about all the medications and medical procedures. And he says, oh, you know, that's all part of God's healing. That was his, his take on it. And I said, well, so where did you have your transplant? Oh, university hospital. Same hospital, same doctors. So I'm like, oh, okay. really? So I'm like thinking, what's the probability that there were only three African-Americans in the state of Colorado to have had a transplant? Brother Dewberry was number three, and I was soon to be number four, Right. It, you know, so I couldn't ignore that. Yeah. Um, and then I had, you know, a couple other what I would describe as mystical experiences. You know, presents visited me, and so I'm still, you know, trying to hold out for time, thinking, uh, okay, can I wait till May? And it's like, uh, no. <laughs> you know, how <laughs> about February when I'm given the no? I said, okay, Christmas holidays, please. I want to be with my family. It's like, okay, after the Christmas holiday, you had to go on the list. <laughs> And I go on the list. I'm on the list for four days. That's unheard of. Four days. I mean, who, who's, on the, who's on a transplant list for four days, right? So I had this transplant. And I mean, I have to think about those kinds of things, right? That, so here I am, I'm in Colorado, and I'm having a transplant after being on the list for four days, And, by the way, in between, uh, I got my beeper on a Thursday afternoon. And uh, on Sunday night, um, I'm really tired because I've been running around thinking, all right, got the beeper, uh, thinking this is January, early January. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it'll be February. Because they told me because of the number of accidents in Colorado in the winter, because of my body size and blood type, That I might, it might be six to eight weeks, which is really, again, unusual, but Colorado was sort of sitting out there at the time with no other transplant centers except for UCLA, Mm -hmm. Um, and a heart cannot stay out of the body for more than four hours. So it's likely that the donor was going to be in Colorado somewhere. So, um, but on that particular Sunday night, um, I turn off my ringer to my phone because I just couldn't deal with the phone ringing in the middle of the night, which you're not supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I get into bed and I hear this little voice say, "Where's your beeper?" And I'm like, "Oh, I don't know. I'm too tired. I'm not going to get up, you know." And it comes back a little louder. Says, "Where's your beeper?" And I'm like. Who knows where my beeper is? And it comes back really loud and says, get up and find your beeper now. Yeah. And so, you know, I get up and, you know, I had to go downstairs because I was a tri-level house and find the beeper attached to my purse, throw it on the floor, and go back to sleep. And a few hours later, it's beeping. Wow. And I think now, what if I had just not followed that little voice? Mm-hmm. You know, I would have missed that heart. And what would that story have been, right? Yeah. So, so there were these, these incidents that were occurring that let me know that I, need, that I needed to follow this path. And, and in some ways, I had my own Garden of Gethsemane experience on my couch in my house saying, Oh, Lord, why me? Why me? You know? And this voice came back and said, Why not you? Maybe this is your part in the plan. So step up. You know, I know you think you're here to be the next Black Freud. <laughs> but maybe that's not what you're here for. So have this transplant. Get, get with the program. And it was like, what? <laughs> I can't have my pity party for one here. So what happens then is that I start following this voice. You know, which of course leads me to this transplant. But you know, but my 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 spiritual journey is only beginning because for me, this was like super. You know, Richard Rohr says, "Great suffering or great love, Mm -hmm. you know, is the source of spiritual awakening." So this was just like the beginning of the spiritual awakening. So uh, about eight years after the transplant. Um, I had a really bad rejection episode, you know, for a variety of different reasons, some of them how different centers treat rejection. Um, but nonetheless, I was had since gotten married, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, and moved to Atlanta, and I was now going to University of Alabama, Birmingham for my... Heart transplant uh, uh, checkups and things, and so, but I had 2003 a really bad rejection episode. I was in the hospital for 27 days, mm-hmm. and that was really the first time I thought I was going to die. I know that sounds crazy, you know, I'm like well, you're in heart failure, and who knows if the heart's going to show up. But somehow or other, I think these other little things along the way was my assurance that if I said yes to this, as opposed to saying yes to death, as you know, that. It was the, the, the opportunity to take a whole new path. That was the beginning of the resurrection. I mean, crucifixion going on here, <laughs> yes? Yeah, yeah. But the resurrection was in stop being logical and start listening because there's something in you that's trying to guide you to a new life. And it's not just new life because you have a heart, but it's a whole new life. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I had this rejection episode and it was awful. I had to take really awful medications, which made me feel like I was going to die. And Mm -hmm. I was even calling people to say goodbye, (laughs) all that. But um, I remember waking up one morning and feeling like people's prayers were, were lifting me up in some kind of way. It was really, you know, one of those kind of. Still quiet moments in the hospital, which you have many, um, if you're you know in there. I mean, sometimes in the middle of the night you're talking to nurses and uh, sometimes other patients, and you know, and you begin to understand. Oh, I'm supposed to be here to talk to this person, right? I mean, it just really takes on another uh, uh, level, and so. At that point, they said to me, uh, "Miss Brown, we're going to be able to save your heart, but we're probably going to have to kill your kidneys to do it." And I'm like, "Yeah, okay, right. You know, I'm not believing any of that, right?" Mm-hmm. But six months later, I was in renal failure, mm-hmm. and um, uh, needed to go on dialysis, and um, then needed a kidney transplant. And um, I was very fortunate in that I was uh, teaching and uh, working at Agnes Scott at the time, Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. And it, the, there were a total of 14 people who volunteered to be tested. Nine of them were from that community. Um, five people uh, matched on blood type, um, and three of them on what they call the HLA tissue typing. Um, and then, of course, the person is interviewed. And you know, And I don't know because of HIPAA exactly who that was, except for I do know who my donor was. And, uh, and and miraculously, she was someone that I had hired as, you know, I was associate dean for a while, had hired for her <laughs> position in international <laughs> education. Five years later, she's donating me a kidney. And wow. so, you know, just, you know, just amazing things, you know, happening along the way. And so um, I had a kidney transplant in 2005, um, and uh, went back to working at Agnes Scott for about another seven or eight years. Uh, and I knew that at some point, because I could feel it, that it was probably time for me to let go of the academy, uh, that there was some other call for me, a probably more spiritual mm-hmm. call. Um, but I had a hard time letting it go. You know, it's who you are. And I had been a professor by that time for over 30 years. And I'm like thinking, how can I leave this? <laughs> but, <clears throat> you know, there are, are changes in environments, whether it's change of administration or change of, of deans and various politics, that, you know, it becomes very clear it's time to go. And so in 2013, um, you know, I retired after 33 years of, you know, college administration and teaching. And it really wasn't until I left that I realized, oh, I had this other calling in spiritual direction and leading retreats and helping people f- uncover the peace and joy in their hearts. And I think the spirit had been waiting on me to finally come to the awareness that, Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've created this path for you. You're fine. You know? You're not going to have to worry about money or any of those kinds of things that you've always been worried about. If you would just exhale, relax, and know that you know, I'm, I'm leading you. And so it is that kind of uh, life. You had a life. You're al- you almost die. And then you kind of get resurrected, but for something different. And one of the things that I tell people now is that I think sometimes illness is um, a way to wake you up. That is that you can't remain the same person that you were before. Mm -hmm. And I think if you do, you go back to having something else. So You know, the transplant was not enough to fully wake me up, right? It's like, okay, let me get back to being a professor and let's see, you know, what else do I need to do, blah, 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 blah. right? And I even changed schools and, you know, do something different and um, still not ready to let that go. So I had to have a rejection episode and, you know, kidney failure and a kidney transplant. And after that, it's kind of like okay, I think I'm getting it now. (laughs) You know, that's when I sort of started training, you know, for the spiritual direction and realized as a matter of fact, I was in the hospital and um, I had been taking a class on pastoral counseling and took my books with me um, which were a great distraction from the medications that they were giving me. And so uh, I ran across spiritual direction while I was you know, there and my whole body kind of lit up like, oh, this sounds... And I remember getting up out of my bed, putting on my robe and going down the hall to get on this computer. I knew exactly where it was. And, you know, type in spiritual direction training programs and all this stuff popped up. And SDI, you know, Spiritual Directors International. I'm like, oh my God, there's a whole field. <laughs> it's a thing. Yes, <laughs> it's really a thing. And so it was like, yeah. And uh, once I had my tr- kidney transplant, I, it was... Uh, gave me an opportunity to then do the the training You know, after that. I promised my husband that I wasn't going to take on anything <laughs> until I was through that. But I think that uh, I really needed to finally get to that point of being able to say, it, that was a wonderful life, but you're being called to something else. Hmm. And you cannot remain the same person that you were. This driven hardcore professor trying to build up a resume, my resume, and that the clear message was that I was not here for me. This is mm-hmm. my life is not about me. It's about my connection to all these other human spirits. And I need to be doing something to help wake them up. That's what I was being called to do It's like Okay, you're still here. This is what you're still here for. And only you can tell this story because only you have been through this. Right, right. And, and, it, and if people are afraid to have that conversation with spirit or to have that conversation with God because that's too intimidating, then you can talk to your heart. Cause your heart is carrying that wisdom, uh, that and it's it's you know it's it's the source of that little voice that says, get up and go find your beeper, or you know it's it's yeah. that that same voice that says, okay, look, you're having this transplant, so that, let's get with the program. We we hear it all the time. I think sometimes we either don't want to follow the guidance, or we're afraid to follow the guidance, or we think, as I did, that we know best. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it's really, to me right now, hysterical. But at the time, it was like, oh, no, I know what to do. <laughs> so now I think, well, I mean, illness is very humbling. And uh, it, it gives you an opportunity to really do some deep reflection. I mean, when you're in the hospital, like I said, when you're in the hospital, middle of the night, you're awake, because who gets any sleep in the hospital? Uh, you have a lot of time. To think about things. And so after my kidney transplant, uh, I was still having some symptoms of water retention, et cetera. And I went back to my doctors and I said, Hey, I said, I don't understand. I had the kidney transplant. Why am I having, you know, this, this fluid in my uh, swollen legs, all that. And they said, Oh, I guess it's time to fix that, uh, leaking valve. I said a leaking valve, and they said, uh, "Yeah, well, you know, you had so many biopsies, and uh, for, for a biopsy, they go down a vein in your neck, uh, through your tricuspid valve, and take, you know, samples from the heart to check for rejection." I had had by by the time I was sort of done over 150 of those. And uh, so they wore out my tricuspid valve. Wow. And so they said, yeah, you know, your tricuspid valve is kind of leaking. And I said, well, so when do we decide that uh, we need to fix it? And they said, oh, probably when you can't take it anymore. And so I said, so do you have any more objective criteria? <laughs> and they said, well, you know, fluids are backing up on your liver. I said, and how do we test for that? And they said, well, you know, we can do a sonogram. I said, Let's do that. Sign me up. <laughs> well, so they do the sonogram, and as soon as they get the results, they're calling me up to schedule surgery. Again, you know, something in me is saying, not, something's not right here. And, uh, and so I I you know, have this valve replacement um, in 2006, and they, uh, uh, in order to get to the tricuspid valve, they, they damaged what they call the bundle of hiss a little bit, which is what controls the electrical circuiting of the heart. So they had to put in a pacemaker. <laughs> so so uh, my husband lovingly says, well, I go to bed with three women, a clock, and a cow every night. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, the, but here's another uh, moment when the guidance is, you need to go in and talk to these people about this situation. And they 're sort of just you know sitting around waiting for me, I guess, to fall out somewhere and rush me into a hospital, which is not a good way to have uh, surgery, <laughs> yeah. but um, which is why i 've now learned to listen to my guidance mm-hmm. as well as to the doctors, it's not that i 'm ignoring what they tell me, but they 're not always on the right track, and I certainly have uh, received some guidance. Um, about well, I don't think you want to do that. Or uh, how do we wean me off a of prednisone so I don't become a diabetic? Um, you know, lots of lots of little things. Uh, a, a couple of years back, um, I was having some weird heartbeats, and uh, the, the, I, they, I, they held me in the hospital overnight, and uh, they sent somebody down from psych, and I laughed. <laughs> 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 they said, you know, maybe you're just having, you know. A, Uh, You know, you were in the hospital 10 years ago, so maybe this is like, and I'm like, no. (laughs) So, but what they, a very knowledgeable Kaiser doctor in Atlanta uh, diagnosed that I was having these um, heartbeats that were sort of coming from something underneath my heart. Well, what I found out later was that uh, some centers, when they conduct heart transplants, will leave part of your old heart in to sew the new heart into Wow. So yes, absolutely. And so, but that tissue has its own electrical impulses. And uh, so initially they discovered that this tissue was pacing my new heart. And later it, it, it goes into tachycardia every now and then and causes what I call a heartquake. And so, so one of the doctors at UAB wanted to do electrical ablation, you know, to kind of connect disconnect these these contacts. Um, and, you know, my, my husband and I now call, refer to them as electricians and plumbers. <laughs> and so we consulted a couple of plumbers and said, mm, I don't know. Um, but when I went in to talk to uh, the doctor about doing the procedure, he was explaining it, and as he was talking, I was hearing another conversation, which is, you're my next research paper. And so I said, oh, I listened very politely and then I came home and took it into the silence. And what I heard there was, don't let them touch you. Hmm. And so, um, you know, when he called, uh, you know, they called to set up the uh, procedure, I said, you know, I'm going to postpone this for a while, and I'll email the doctor and let him know. And so when I emailed him, I said, you know, I'm just not comfortable with this right now. I said, but um, I know you're doing a lot of research on this topic. I said, can you send me a paper? (laughs) And so he said, oh, of course. And so uh, he sends a paper, and it's on a single 59-year-old transplant patient so he was doing research wow and and you know i had to forgive him uh because you know i was once a young arrogant researcher <laughs> trying to collect data any way that i could right yeah, yeah i mean after i got over the initial anger right uh because that that kind of stuff happens in hospitals i mean i probably have been in at least over the over the many years right i probably been in at least 3 research projects that I would, I, they never asked me permission for so you know I'm pretty now vigilant um, but I'm also trusting my guidance yeah. my inner guidance about these things yeah. and so, <clears throat> so I think the second thing that I've gotten from all of this that inner guidance is so important and we all have it it's like our own internal GPS and it will keep us out of the worst of things and lead us to the best of things but we have to learn how to trust it.
0: Yeah.
1: And I've had a ton of experience having to trust it when I'm in what I consider unknown territory. Uh, and so I'm just so grateful to still be thriving in many ways. I'm, you know, obviously I have my limitations. I'm not going to run a marathon <laughs> or climb a 15-footer in Colorado. But I am able to do the work that the Spirit has out there for me. And um, and I think each day I gain in awareness um, and also in trust because you know we can get guidance about okay it's time for you to go to bed and we'll stay up later anyway right so <clears throat> you know I'm 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 obviously not done uh, <laughs> with the journey but wow it's been such a journey uh, uh, and and and. A spiritual journey. And it's really helped me to understand the degree to which that's what we're on. We're on a spiritual journey, you know, in this physical place. So, uh, and I would love for more people to know that and to begin to shift their identity from the body to the spirit. I think we could live in a totally different world if we could get more people to understand that, you know, they're really not bodies, they're spirits, And, you know, to begin to utilize the guidance that the spirit offers as opposed to following typical, you know, ego orientation to everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Loretta, for your time here today. We really appreciate it. And for those that would love to get to know Loretta a little bit better and uh, come listen to her, buy your book and have it signed, you can join us on Thursday, November 21st at ZG headquarters. All of the information will be on our website and Rita will be reading a little and signing a little, and uh, you can ask her all the questions that you'd like. If you'd like to know more about Loretta in the meantime, you can go to her website, loretacolmanbrown.com com that's L E R I T A C O L E M A N B R O W N dot com or her other site peace for dot com that's P E A C E F O R hearts dot com. Thanks so much, Larita.